Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. A little over 500 years ago, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic priest, was reading his Bible a lot and came to some conclusions that the church had drifted from the description of the church that you find in Scripture. And so he decided to post 95 theses, and he put them on the church door, which was like the bulletin board of the community, to invite discussion for people to get involved in these issues that don't seem to square out with Scripture. So he wrote these 95 theses. He didn't intend to start some arguments or have debates. He just wanted some people to start thinking and start discussing. He wasn't angry. He wasn't a cynic. He wasn't perfect either, by the way. He had some really bad attitudes about the Jews. You got to remember in medieval times, all of the reformers that include Martin Luther and, and many of those who followed him and joined this Reformation in its various forms, they did some awful things. It was a rough and somewhat, in our standards, uncivilized world. And so this guy is no saint and never proclaimed to be one. But he did start the discussion, and it was not primarily a criticism of the church, but he wanted to focus on the drift that the church was displaying and the way it operated, a drift from the New Testament realities. So here we are 500 years later, and I uh, don't have any visions of grandeur about being a reformer, but I do feel that the church is at a time where we need to take a close look at how we have drifted over the last 500 years and the horrible impact that has had on our effectiveness to be the church that Jesus launched and what we see in the book of Acts and all the epistles of the New Testament. And that kingdom culture that Jesus spoke about over and over again in the Gospels. Interestingly, there was a lady, an author, a brilliant historian, by the name of Phyllis Tickle. She wrote a book back in 2008 about the Great Emergence. And she points out in this book called The Great Emergence that about every 500 years, the church cleans out the attic, <laughs> the collected of bad habits, the, the drift issues. And again, she's not a cynic either. She's a person too that loved the church and cared deeply about the church, but felt that if you study history, about every 500 years, give or take months, maybe even a couple of years, but about that general time frame, there has been some great reorganization of the church, the reorganization of thinking, the ineffectiveness of the church, and some of the ways it operates on the large scale and on the individual church scale, so that there rises up a discontent among people, and they read their Bibles with that lens of, you know, why aren't we more productive, more effective as the people of God? Clearly understanding that the Holy Spirit's not on vacation, but the results wane and the church starts uh, losing influence in the society. And so there's uh, a rising up of people who are asking hard questions. I'm one of those. 
And I've spent just about my whole life asking these questions and looking at Scripture and thinking about this. So Phyllis Tickle's book, The Great Emergence, just a fantastic read. It really is. And here's what she says. The church was launched at Pentecost. That's the official beginning of the church, the people of God, and the growth of this movement called Christianity. Now, about 500 years later, the church was still kind of young, kind of renegade, not very sophisticated, and in fact, not strongly biblical in some ways. And so at 500 years, there was the Roman Catholic Church. It was, that's what it was at that point. Pope Gregory decided that, you know, in order to really get back to Scripture and have some discipline in the way we do church, first of all, we need to train the priests. And so he brought that into the system to bring some kind of depth and integrity to the key leader at each parish at that time. We had priests and parish in the Roman Catholic Church at that time. That's all there was. But to bring some kind of integrity and biblical foundation at a much clearer and deeper level. He said, we've got to train and equip the people that are the leaders at these churches, the priests. And so he began that training. And one of the things that concerned Pope Gregory is that there was a lot of mysticism and uh, even magic connected with the church. For example, in the Latin Mass, which is what was the primary language of the Roman Catholic Church, it was the primary language of Rome, in Latin, the words hocus pocus, which you might only know as words that are connected with magic shows, hocus pocus, those words come out of the Catholic Mass for Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, and they basically mean, this is my body. And so you can see the connection with the thought about magic and how it was all intertwined. And so in that first 500-year mark in the history of the church, there was a serious attempt to clean the church up and get rid of some of this magic stuff and clarify the training of those people that were the pastors, called priests at that time, to guide a church in a little more biblical way. 500 years later, another turning point, according to Phyllis Tickle, and really according to history, if you look at this, it makes a lot of sense. A thousand years later, we had a division in the church there was the Eastern Orthodox Church, all those countries to the east that were not part of the Roman Empire, and then those churches in the west, which were part of the Roman Empire, which would include Europe and Northern Africa and some of those places. But there was a serious question and a somewhat of a division in the discussions about who really was Jesus. Was he God? Was he man? Who was this Jesus Christ? And how do we preach about him? And how do we describe this unique person in all of history? And so what happened is there was a council, a, a big meeting of both the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Church gathered together to decide, according to the Bible, what can we really say about this person, Jesus, in terms of who is he? And they decided, rightly so, if you look at the scripture really carefully, that he was not either God or man, that he was a God-man. 
And instead of binary thinking, either or, they said both and. And this is still in many churches, as we consult churches, a lot of times people are stuck on issues because the leaders of the church are thinking either or. And a lot of the solutions that our consultants bring to churches are insights about, you know, maybe this is a both and issue. And so this has plagued Christians for centuries. And at the year 1000, this was a great turning point that the Eastern Church and the Western Church finally got on the same page about one of the most important issues of the faith. And that is, who in the world is Jesus? And so that's been what Christianity has followed, both in the East and the West, in all the years following, somewhere right around at 1,000 years since the beginning of the church. So that was the second renewal situation for the church, and it was 500 years after the first one. The next one, at 1,500 years, actually, October 31st, 1517, marks the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. They eventually were called people who protested against the Roman Catholic Church, but actually it started out as a desire to get back to Scripture and hone in a little closer to authentic Christianity. And, of course, that was the date that Martin Luther posted these 95 theses. And there were many other people, Zwingli, all the way through Wesley. There were dozens of reformers, some better known than others, all of whom had same goal and didn't agree on everything, but they were part of this creative uh, tension mechanism of reformation of let's get the church back to where we can be more effective. And it, of course, had a huge impact. It was wonderful. The growth of Christianity through that Protestant Reformation just had so much impact on the mission movement around the world and the health and vitality of churches, and even had a reverse impact on the Roman Catholic Church, which was Luther's first intention, not to break away from the Roman Catholic Church, but to start a discussion that would bring the church back into unity. Admittedly, the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope particularly, was somewhat corrupt at that time and took offense at this and basically threw Martin Luther out of the favor of the church. And so they ended up being people that were starting a new branch of Christianity, the Protestant movement, and they began being called Protestants, and some of them were even called Lutherans, which absolutely would make Martin Luther turn over in his grave. He never wanted a church named after himself. It just wasn't part of his personality. So that's the way the church goes. There was, at the time of the Reformation, an amazing parallel invention called the printing press, Someone invented uh, this movable type, and this allowed the writings of Luther and all the other reformers to actually get printed on real paper. And the old method of having a bunch of scribes follow someone at the head of the group reading a text. And of course, it also increased the number of Bibles. So people could look up chapter and verse and say, well, I'm going to look at God's word and I'm going to test what these people are saying. I'm going to test what the Roman Catholic Church is doing, and I'm going to see if this Reformation is authentic. And so the printing press really fueled 
the 500-year change that took place at the 1,500-year point of the beginning of the Christian church. Today, at year 2000, we're 500 years into the last uh, big change in the church, the try to get back to the, to the biblical form of the church and get away from all the drift that just naturally clutters up the church from its effectiveness. And the invention today, more than anything else, is probably Google. And the great thing about Google and the difference of the printing press is that with Google, it becomes an opportunity for the first time in history for Christianity to be a bottom-up movement where you don't have to have the favor of someone rich enough to hire a printing company, but can sort out ideas and promote renewal concepts through the internet. And anybody can do that, and it's relatively inexpensive. Luther had to have a benefactor to write his stuff, and most of the reformers had the same, or they could have never gone through the expensive and labor-intensive approach of getting some printing presses ready to print some kind of a document or even a book. Now it's totally different. So here we are today, about 500 years later, and nobody really knows when exactly this new Reformation has started or if it has started or when it will start. But there are a lot of signs that show that this is the time that we're in it. And so we're going to look at in this series of nine episodes, 95 theses that represent 40 years of research and work with thousands of churches through the work of Church Doctor Ministries and how we have gone back to Scripture, like all Reformers must, and really looked at the way we do church. And some of these theses that we'll present may touch you on the edge of offensive, and please, I want you to know they are not meant that way at all. Consider them challenging. That's fair. But no offense is intended. We have no desire to be belligerent or mean-spirited to Christian believers who have been soaked for decades in bad habits that churches have almost baptized sacred, things that we do that really don't connect people to Jesus. Actually, some of the things we do actually turn off unchurched people, and we don't do it intentionally. All of this is unintentional, and the people involved in the things in our churches that roadblock the church's effectiveness, they're not bad people. They trust in Jesus. Most of them are true believers. Most of them worship regularly. A lot of them read their Bible regularly or in a Bible class. They really do trust in Jesus and will be in heaven, but in terms of being heavenly-minded, Together, in the way that we've organized the church, we're not much earthly good for the mission that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that people, besides those of us who are Christians, might know Jesus and be with us in eternity with him. And they're not bad people, and they're not bad churches, but with an open mind and an open heart, we need to take a really hard look at this milestone of history so that we can be the most effective people that we are called in the Scripture ambassadors 
representatives for Jesus Christ in this world. So there are some signs that the time is ripe for this kind of discussion. There are a lot of people in churches, leaders of churches, pastors of churches, people who attend churches, and leaders of leaders of churches that are beginning to ask some serious questions about the incredible situation that we're in right now. So let's talk about that. In the Western church, there's been this spiritual decline in Western nations. It's been going on for a long time. The church is losing many, many people. Percentage of people who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ continues to decline at phenomenal rates, at scary rates. The rise of secularization, because the playing field has been left open without influence of the church, is just phenomenal in the direction of many, many whole nations. And the decline in the number of churches, the number of churches that close every day, 365 days a year, for decades now, that's just incredible, the number of churches that are just running out of people. It's just a phenomenal movement that no one really wants to talk about because it's painful. But the number of people in churches that continues to decline, the age of the people in church that continues to get older, the whole generation of young postmodern young adults that have primarily as a whole generation exited the church, not entirely, but the percentages are so low it's probably less than 1% of those that are still sticking around the church. And so the influence of Christianity on society has just been diminished to a point where we just don't have a listening post anymore. People just don't think about church as a place that has any value. However, there is other parts of this era that we are in that make this a very exciting and interesting moment in history. So I think God's starting to get our attention. Now, it depends on who you look at. Our research at Church Doctor Ministries, with a few thousand churches, our research is in-depth. It includes tens of thousands of interviews and hundreds of thousands of research instruments, questionnaires, surveys of all different kinds. And our estimate is that about 79 to 80% of the churches in the U.S. are plateaued and declining. And in other countries that have been traditionally Christian, sometimes even worse, many of the countries of Europe have become almost entirely secularized and what churches remain are greatly marginalized. So we have an estimate of 79 to 80% of the churches in America are plateaued and declining. Now, those that are growing, they make the news. They get on television once in a while. They get in newsprint. Their pastors write books that get published and read by lots of people. But the truth is, not all, but quite a few of those churches are basically reaping a harvest of people that come from churches that have declined to such a low level, they can't afford quality worship leaders anymore. They can't afford a nursery for people's kids. They don't have a youth director that even is part-time that they can afford. And so for some valid reasons, these people are bailing and going to larger churches. My friend Tom Rayner, brilliant guy from the Southern Baptist tradition, his research which is smaller and a smaller section of churches, 
But in his research, he claims that 90% of the churches are declining or growing at a rate slower than their communities. And that's a little different slice of looking at it, but a good one. And it's good to note. I'm reminded back in April 2017, Ed Stetzer, who is a professor at Wheaton College in Chicago, and also a friend and a brilliant research-oriented person. Ed Stetzer wrote an editorial in the Washington Post. And one of the things he says is, well, actually, this was the title. If it doesn't stem its decline, mainline Protestantism has just 23 Easter's left to celebrate. So the point is, after that, there will no longer be Protestant churches at the rate we're going. So that ought to get somebody's attention. It's dramatic. It's a great title for an article, but it should get our attention. One more research-related group, the Pew Foundation, has looked at the uh, annual census and the census that the country does in a larger scope every few years and has identified what they call the rise of the nuns. That's not N-U-N, like in the Catholic Church, those nuns, but the nuns The people that say, what religion are you on the census? And they choose the option none, N-O-N-E. And that has risen dramatically. So that's a lot of challenging news. But there are signs of renewal and revival. And that's why I wrote the book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival. I think God is finally getting our attention And one of the evidences of that is when that book was printed, the first printing sold out in 48 hours. I think it greatly surprised the publisher, and it really challenged me. I hope that many people will be interested in this, but 48 hours, wow. Even at our ministry, we couldn't even get books to send to our donors, and uh, some of our staff people couldn't get, I didn't get one myself. The publisher scrambled to print more books. I'm not bragging about the book uh, or its title, although I I do think it is a good title, Who Broke My Church, and our editor and publisher felt the same about that. But I think the real reason why it's sold out and continues to sell is the fact that I think God has the intention of church leaders. And my prayer is that this book will not just be read by a pastor as some sort of academic exercise, but it needs to be read by influencers in the church, not just people that are so-called elected officials or on some board, but anyone who has influence in the church. You should not only read this, but in being a group situation. And so immediately we had people saying, hey, do you have a group study guide, discussion guide for this thing? So the two weeks after it was published, I spent 12 hours a day for two weeks basically writing a discussion guide. And now that's available on Amazon. Because we do want to encourage groups of people to read and then discuss because processing with other people in your church, whether we agree or disagree, just that processing helps us to internalize at a cultural level what has to happen, what needs to change in the church. Some of these sacred cows need to be taken out to pasture and put away, but we need to do it gently. We can't beat up people in the church who think this is what church is really all about. And so it has to be a slow, intentional movement in the church. And so the group discussions are really, really important. And then we need to influence other people 
who in the church, through those influencers, to have that same discussion over again. And so the book is just a platform, a guide, and the discussion guide is just a tool to get people to write some things down and then bring them to a group setting and make a discussion and let people get their feelings out. These are sensitive issues. We hold our religion close to our emotions. And so sometimes there's some emotional angst that goes with change. And that's okay. That's normal. That just means your faith is important to you. And if it is, this is going to help. Well, along these lines, I wrote 95 Theses for a new Reformation. They are not a summary of the book. They are a summary of what we have identified in churches over and over again as drift issues that really need to be brought back into line. And really, it's all about connecting back to the kingdom of God. Basically, these 95 Theses are pointing to what Jesus taught about the culture, the values, the beliefs, the attitudes, the worldviews, the priorities of people who are kingdom people. We need to become kingdom people again. And so as you continue with this series about the 95 Theses, and we get into the actual 95 Theses in episode two, we'll start with some of them and we'll unpack them. Please don't take offense. Just take them seriously and lift them up to prayer and put them alongside scripture and ask yourself, are we kingdom people in the way we operate in some of these areas? Like Martin Luther's 95 Theses, They're meant for discussion, so use them for discussion. I pray that they're helpful to you because all we really care about at Church Doctor Ministries is helping the local church be what God intended it to be because when the church does what the church does well, it is the greatest movement on the planet that has the greatest good for the people on this planet. Without question, that's our commitment. Enjoy this series. See you next time. God bless. You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes. Check out Kent Hunter's new book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival, available now wherever books are sold.